We are into message number 11 on the book of Revelation. We're past Christmas, so we can do this now, okay? We are up to the beginning of chapter 6, okay? We're up to the beginning of chapter 6, okay? And since as I was doing messages based on Christmas in December, it's been some time since we've, we've talked about this. Um, just a quick review, quick run through. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Remember, as we go through this book, that's a revelation of Jesus. It's reviewing many things about Jesus. If you're paying close attention, looking at many things about Jesus. And when you see the phrase, things which must shortly come to pass, most translators believe that's a better translation. When you see that word shortly, all through Revelation, shortly, as many times in Revelation, it means suddenly. Suddenly is what that word means, that Greek word. And just paraphrasing a little bit of chapter 1, you have the apostle John, exiled by the Roman emperor Domitian, sends him off the coast of Turkey to an island called Patmos. This book was written in 96 AD. Revelation 1, 3. Now, this is what you got to remember here. Blessed, happy to be envy is the man who reads aloud in the assemblies the word of this prophecy. And blessed, happy to be envied are those who hear it read, is what that actually means, is when it's taught in church, you are blessed and I am blessed, okay? And who keep them, but listen, keep themselves true to the things which are written in it, in this book, heeding them, laying them to heart, that means thinking about them, for the time for them to be fulfilled is near. And as we can See, looking at this, this is the only book that says you get blessed if you read this out loud in church. The only book in the Bible that makes that promise. Revelation 1.4, John to the seven churches which, which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was, which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before the throne. Jesus instructs John and has made him transcribe seven letters to seven churches, which are in Asia, which is not the continent of Asia, but it, it's a, it's a, it was the name of a Roman province in Turkey at the time, Asia. And I, I don't have time to go through in detail when you read these seven letters in, to the seven churches in chapters two and three, many commentators Many prophecy experts believe it's so obvious, and it is, that these letters are intended for the end-time church right now. And we hit that in detail when we were going over chapters 2 and 3. 
These are the words of Jesus, and he starts to give instructions to the apostle John in Revelation 1, 11 through 13. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, John, write in a book. Send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the, he's in the midst of the seven candlesticks was the son of man. So here we have Jesus standing in the midst of these candlesticks. These candlesticks at the time are located here on earth. He's very clear. You can see in Revelation 1.20 that the seven golden candlesticks are the churches. And he's walking amidst them. He's amidst them. And the reason so many scholars believe that's referring to the end time church is because he has John pen the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three with all kinds of warnings. So much in there is about not compromising. The same thing that's going on in the church today, so many churches... There's ministers we can't have back here that have been here five or six times because they're compromising. And we went over detail about these churches. But, but listen, he, he's, he's telling the church, the end time church this. Then in Revelation 4, 1 and 2, after this I looked and be, after the letters are over, behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was at work, as if it were a trumpet talking to me, which said, come up hither, come up hither, and I will show you, you the things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and in the throne room set in heaven, and there he was on the throne. Just like in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, just like it, gee, what a coincidence, you have the apostle John that hears a voice that sounded like a trumpet talking the rapture scripture in 1 Thessalonians has us departing in the rapture after a blast of a trumpet. And what we just read in Revelation 4.1 is this trumpet saying, come up, come up. It's talking about heaven. Come up here. And, and what happens with us at the blast of a trumpet, we're caught up in the clouds and, and, and wind up in heaven just like the apostle John. Many commentators believe Revelation 4.1 is referring to the rapture. And the Apostle John is representing the end time church when he gets called up to heaven by a trumpet. The churches have been spoken to, told what to look for in the last days, and you never hear them mentioned again after this. Chapter 4 is the church being called up and is seen in the throne room of God that we went over in detail. Chapter 5 is taking place in the throne room immediately after the rapture, right before the tribulation, where you have the seven seals being handed to Jesus. Chapters 1 through 5 is something we went over verse by verse in extreme detail, covering 10 different messages. Feel free to refer back to any of those on YouTube, Living Word website, or the Living Word app. And I don't know how many of you guys have ever heard this, but there is a big dispute among commentators, scholars, 
prophecy experts about how long is the period of time, if any, between the rapture happening and the tribulation beginning. Raise your hand if you've heard there's a period of time between the rapture and the tribulation. Because I had not. I had not. And, and so I started looking into it. And why do they think this? Not everyone thinks this, but I tr- I'm just trying to give you all the points of view. And we may only get through six verses today. Revelation chapter six, because there's just some things that I want to cover, that, like this next thing that you just don't really normally hear about. And I'm going to put this up on the screens for you as I walk through it. God gave the Jews seven feast days to be observed forever. So let's just take a look at these because this actually plays into this theory in regards of how much time, if there is any, between the rapture happening and the tribulation beginning. Okay, you can see. Can we, can we get those on the screen? Jesus was crucified on Passover. Okay? The first feast day, Jesus, second one, Jesus was in the grave on unleavened bread. That's the second feast day. Jesus rose from the dead on first fruits. Third feast day, the church began on Pentecost. Fourth feast day, there is reason to believe the church will be raptured on trumpets. A very convincing reason. I've done a whole sermon on that. I think 2017, there's, uh, um, there is reason to believe the second coming will occur and the tribulation period will end on atonement. The sixth feast day, there's reason to believe the millennium will begin on tabernacles, the seventh feast day. And so looking at those feast days, because between the feast of trumpets, okay, and I did a whole, whole sermon on why the rapture is coming out in the feast of trumpets, which is the fifth feast day, and the tribulation ending on atonement, which is the sixth feast day, all right, between the fifth and sixth feast days, there's a period of 10 days called the awesome days. And if you go look at the 70th week that we went over in Daniel is considered to be the tribulation period is equal to seven years well, they've got 10 days in there. Do you get what I'm saying? What, what they're calling, can we put those feast days back up? Between the fifth and sixth feast day, there's 10 days in there. And they're looking at the seven days of the tribulation and say, well, that's just seven days if the feasts are giving us a hint here, right? Where's the other three days, which represents a year? Am I getting this across? Okay. So many scholars believe that those extra three days or three years between the feasts is between the time of the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Because the tribulation lasts seven years. Many scholars believe, not all though, by having three years between the rapture and the tribulation, it gives people the opportunity to realize what happened with the rapture. And I'm not saying I support this. this. This just really made me think. I don't know. But it, think about it. happens, right? 800 million disappear. The world's trying to deal with that. 
So they, th- they feel like it gives people the opportunity to, to repent, mourn their loved ones being gone. Really look at the situation. Because if they don't do that, their, will be, their fate will be sealed forever. And, I, and, and, and how much time would it give the church to kind of, well, you can tell me people are showing up to church the day after the rapture. The churches will be packed. Brian Sutherland will be here that. No, I'm just kidding. Come on in after the rapture. I've said everybody. I've said my brother. I've said Jamie. said them all. Somebody will be here. Somebody will be here. And Lord, you know I do not want to stay. I'm not asking to stay. I think there will be people called to stay. I really do. That understand, that, that know everything that's going to happen. It allows three years for the Antichrist to become prevalent and start his rise of power before the tribulation begins. Because you think about that, he's just going to bam, make that covenant in the Middle East, just like that? Because scholars point to the fact that we're not going to know who it is that we're restraining in regards to the Antichrist. We are actually it's restraining him. We're not going to find that out. The Bible is very clear. So we, as we open Revelation 6, Jesus is taking the scroll from the hand of the Father sitting on the throne. There are three sets of seven judgments each that the world will encounter in Revelation 6, chapters 8 and 9, and chapter 16. Just like the book of Daniel, Revelation is not all in order. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, and and we're just going chapter by chapter. So we'll get a little break, um, right, for a few chapters before we hit the bowl judgments. Out of those judgments, you have the seventh seal judgment actually opening the trumpet judgment. That's what it does. Seventh seal opens the trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens the bowls. And when the world thinks that maybe nothing worse could ever happen, you have a whole new set of judgments, two different times. And you have to think about this, real people. This is why, how can, this doesn't mean anything, Jim. Yes, it does. We're not here, Jim. It means a lot because real people will be experiencing these things. And many people could be people that you are close to, who you love, who you gave birth to. Billions will die. It should serve as motivation to the church to speak to those around you in regards to Jesus Christ, even if you've been rejected before. You should try again. If you experience alienation from family members in these last days, consider it worth it if the result is the one that you love is spared from the seven years of God's wrath, and if they're not spared, then they're, they're spared. From, they don't get the mark. They just don't get the mark of the beast because they have enough information. Revelation 6.1, I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, I heard as it were the noise of thunder. And one of the four beasts saying, come and see. How is this revealing Jesus Christ? Because now you have Jesus in a different capacity. You see him as a judge. 
Why? Because he paid the price for man's redemption by dying on the cross. And while we're not responsible for his birth in those circumstances, we are definitely responsible in regards to the circumstances of his death. What am I saying? Every man was born in original sin. Can't help that. But that doesn't matter because God provided a solution for the issue of sin, and the solution is Jesus Christ. And what he did at the cross and through the resurrection, that is the solution. But if a man or a woman rejects that, there's nothing left for him but judgment. Interestingly enough, Christ who gave us a solution, a way out of necessity, now he's become the judge. Everything that happens in the tribulation, which is basically Revelation 6 through 19, is predicated completely on the sacrifice of Jesus, which will leave those that are left behind in the tribulation no argument. They will have no argument. You can have Christ as your Savior today, or you can have him as your judge tomorrow, whenever that is. 2030, 2033. Don't get all caught up on the rapture being in, in a Shemitah year. Because I've studied a lot of people, and that is just somebody's opinion. Very knowledgeable people's opinion, but a, some really knowledgeable people think it has nothing to do with the Shemitah. They, they're going by other timelines. Other timelines. Just say, oh, it's, it's not 22 or 23 uh, because, and, and then remember when Joshua stopped the sun, they could have calculated wrong, could be the year after, the Shemitah year, right? Oh, so then we're only 22 and 23 and, and 29 and 30? There's so many more knowledgeable people that have opinions that just might sway you if you read after them. And, 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 but as you can see from the opening of the first seal, there's no mention of the church. We'll see that. There's no mention. There's one scripture that, that people try to say that that's them. It's not them. And I'm going to tell you when we get there why it's not them. They're, okay, one time in seven years, that's all he's going to do for us? You can't tell me if the church was here on earth during any part of this period of time, looking at the magnitude of this seven years, there wouldn't be detailed instructions on what to do, just like there is with the rest of life. So as we read in Revelation 6.1, Jesus opening the first seal, there's thunder, and one of the four beasts telling John, come and see, come and see. Verse 2, and I saw, behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer uh, a small number of scholars believe this is Jesus Christ. This is not Jesus Christ. It's absolutely not Jesus Christ. One thing you have to understand about the tribulation, there are many reasons for the tribulation, but the primary objective is to bring Israel to her knees and come back to God, make her cry out for God. That is the primary reason. And really for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, there's a lot going on there, right? There's a lot of other people involved and, and a lot of decisions that'll made that'll send them 
to hell for eternity or to heaven for eternity. The primary reason is to bring Israel back to God. You have Israel doing okay for the first three and a half years. She may even think, some scholars believe, that the Antichrist is the Messiah. And you have these four horsemen that are coming in the seals, and they've been given many names over the years, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You can see these guys in, in all kinds of literature, TV shows. They were named after a famous backfield in football at Notre Dame. Four horsemen. They've kind of been relegated by the world to a tall tale, but trust me, it's going to be no tall tale. So this rider in Revelation 6-2 coming in on a white horse, can we look at that again? Can we put that up again? You see, he's got a crown, but it's a victor's crown. It's not the crown of a king. In the Greek, it's a, it's a stephanos. It's a victor's crown is what it's called. He's going out to conquer, becomes victorious over much of the world. This is the Antichrist. And it's really kind of funny, kind of absurd to hear these millennialists, which is this theory is taking over the church. There may be more of the church that believe in that, that we are going to usher in the second coming of Jesus. We're going to win all the political offices. We're going to be dominating. And Jesus says, it's time. Here I come. Good job, church. Not the case. Not the case. They will tell you, don't take all this literally. You have to look deeper between the lines behind the words that John's saying to really find out what it means. But see, we're interpreting Revelation along with many, many others literally, using a literal method. And there is symbolism in Revelation, but not as much as you think. And if you look at it in context, you can always, it always comes clear what the symbolism is. The rider on the horse it's not the Antichrist himself. He represents the Antichrist. Just, just like when you see the, the, the pale horse come out in a later chapter. He's not death itself. That's not death itself. He's representing death. And I just figured that out. You remember that famous, uh, I think it's a 70s Western uh, pale rider? Raise your hand, men. Any women? Any ladies? Pale Rider. Yes. I never got that until this week. They're talking about the horse. Right? That's why they called it Pale Rider. Anyway, sorry. Okay. It's a revelation. Right? But, but in, in Revelation 6-2, you know, he, he, he's got a bow, but he doesn't have arrows. Okay? That's because he comes as a man of peace. The bow symbolizes the fact that he's coming for war, but he doesn't come shooting arrows. And we know from the pronouns here, he is a man. I'm, not ta I'm talking about the Antichrist. He's not a, this is a, he's not a spirit. The Antichrist isn't a, a, a something the devil conjures up into the spirit, right, that, that turns into a man. So the horseman, the Antichrist, 
will make a seven-year treaty with Israel and will be part of his strategy. In the end, he's going to try to destroy the Jews. Daniel 8, 24, his power shall be mighty, but not his own power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. This is referring to the Jewish people. And in the words of John Hagee, the Antichrist is going to make Adolf Hitler look like a choir boy. And I know you guys have heard all this. Just kind of a side note, Daniel 9, 26 and 27. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering because they'll be, they'll be having animal sacrifices in the tribulation temple. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. This prophecy is talking about two distinct destructions of Jerusalem. The first destruction occurred in 70 AD when the Romans burned Jerusalem to the ground and destroyed the temple. But Daniel's prophecy also tells us a final attack on Jerusalem at the end of the seven-year treaty in the last days. Notice how Daniel, can we put that up again in 9, 26, and 27? It says that in 26, that's the first destruction. But then in verse 27, it says, then, then. Okay, then what? Then he shall confirm a covenant. That's right in the beginning of the tribulation. Midway through the tribulation, he breaks it. He either puts a statue of himself in the temple or he walks into the temple, sits down, and calls himself God. Most scholars believe not all of Jerusalem will be taken, but half of it will be taken. In that fight, he gets distracted. Someone else, he, he's not perfect, right? He, he doesn't have, somebody attacks him and stops him from taking all of Jerusalem. Somebody else comes at him, okay? So, so verses three and four, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse, and that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So here we have a second seal being opened. You can see that the writer here is given a sword and the Greek word. There's two Greek words in the Bible for, for sword. This one is macharia. This is a short sword, a type of sword. It's always employed in close contact, violence, or assassinations. It's what this writer's holding. He's not ushering in World War III here. We're just in the second seal. He brings division. He brings civil unrest. You see the phrase, people should kill one another. In the Greek, that's very personal, one-on-one -on -one type killing. Peace is going to be completely disappear, and not just in nations, but in cities, in neighborhoods, in homes. This is going to be a murderous, I believe, a murder, a spirit of murder. Seems like when the shooting of Columbine happened in Colorado, 
that first school that, that was shot up, those poor kids that died, it seemed like you might get one a year after that. Remember? But now it's like every six weeks. Now they barely make the news. You have to, you have to search them out. And it's this type of spirit. Things like we've seen in the last year. But the, it'll just be magnified. I've never seen anyone just drive through a parade. Okay? I mean, just think about it. Anyone could have driven through a parade at any time. These are birth pains, what we're seeing, a form of it. When this horseman gets released, there's going to be stuff in every neighborhood. You know, just some side notes. The red horse, this is a red horse. Many scholars believe the red horse has to do with communism, which you can see even in our government. It's a possibility. You do deep dives. It's not hard doing a deep dive on who, where people get their, their money to run for office, on who's backing them. We have plenty of people that have been backed by communists in the United States Senate and House of Representatives. They are communists. Revelation 5 and 6, and when he had opened, and, and you know what? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Revelation 6, 5 and 6, and when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see, behold, a low, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat. Oh, we need this in the, this Amplified way better here. Let's read this in the Amplified. He says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, a whole day's wages, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. So you're going to have inflation skyrocketing even more than it is right now. World currencies crashing. A quart of wheat is enough for one person to live. It's enough for one person for a day. Okay? It's going to cost you a day's wage for one person to eat. A day's wage just to feed one mouth. Oh, you'll, you'll just get the barley. Well, three quarts of barley is a day's wages because barley's not the same quality as wheat. It takes three quarts of barley to equal the same nourishment as a quart of wheat. That's all going to cost a day's wage. And the oil and the wine are going to be plentiful because that's the last thing at this point anyone's going to be looking for. And if you don't think this is coming, we can already see the birth pains in the world with the hunger. Africa, which is usually a place to be hit first, is fake, they are facing the biggest famine they have ever faced. It, this is in the history. They're saying this famine will be the biggest famine they have ever faced, and I know they like to blame it on the Ukraine war, and I, I mean, I think it's serious, but, but, but we forget about the fact that the biggest farm owner of farmland in the U.S. is Bill Gates. The second biggest is the Chinese government. Why? They're, because Bill Gates 
he's made it clear. He wants, they want the population reduced from 8 billion to 500 million. The tribulation won't even do that. They're offering farmers enough money to see their farms to where they, 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 to buy their farms. They just can't turn it down. These are the two biggest owners of farmland in the U.S., and I promise you, they're not growing anything, okay? This is going on, on all over the world, and huge numbers of farms are being permanently shut down all over Europe. In the Netherlands alone, thousands of farmers are facing force. This is what socialism is. They can just make you sell your farm. You want to be, be in socialism? They can make you sell the farm. Okay, forced buyouts. The government in the Netherlands is planning to conduct forced buyouts of 3,000 Dutch farms with the intention of closing them down. Why? 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 Why are you doing it? To cut nitrogen emissions in half to meet the country's climate goals. As many as 11,200 farms will have to close throughout Europe to cut down the nitrogen emissions. Another 17,600 farmers will have to significantly downsize their livestock operation. You know why? Because the climate gurus say that the, that the flatulence from the cows ruins the air. And so this is why all these, these, these farms are going goodbye. Livestock, goodbye. And this plan could not come at a worse time because grocery prices skyrocketing. World leaders are warning about oncoming food crisis caused by the Ukraine. But it's so much more causing that. Um, you would call this guy a prophecy expert. You remember that guy? He's kind of a weird guy, but boy, he had a lot of knowledge. And his wife were on really early in the morning, Jack Van Impey. He was on every morning. He used to scare me. He scared me. I didn't, I didn't want to watch him. And... and and just quoting him, America's world's last competing superpower does not seem to play a significant role in the end time scenario. Uh, everybody agrees on that. Some scholars suggest America will be severely weakened, even neutralized, by the time the critical events leading up to Jesus' uh, return occurs. Will it be from economic collapse, moral decay, poor leadership, nuclear attack, the power grids that are even even being attacked now. Yeah. I think that's all a ruse, honestly. John Hagee is quoted as saying he hears a lot of people, that's a ruse for when they re- the lights really go out. He hears a lot of people ask, why would God allow a financial c- collapse in America? He says, because the, number, the first commandment, thou shalt not have no other gods before me in America, Money is God in America. Or you could say, based on Jonathan Kahn's book, Return of the Gods, Baal is God in America. Ishtar is God in America. Because of the abortions, the Old Testament God, Malek, is God in America. They're all back. They've just been repackaged with a different look. When I covered for my father, you know, you know a lot of people, they go to church here for a long time. They don't understand. They think I'm kind of weird because I talk about dad or mom. And they don't know who mom or dad is for a long time. People say they went for a whole summer. Well, why is he talking? Who's dad? Is that, is that God? So I will always qualify. I've had a number of people 
tell me that. So my father, who is senior pastor here, I was covering for him a few weeks ago. We outlined this book that pointed out in detail what? What did, what did it point out? 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. Okay? Relative to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pointed this out. And I, I know I pointed this out. But relative to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and gathering to meet him, we beg you, Christians, not to allow your minds to be so quickly unsettled or disturbed or kept excited or alarmed, whether it be by a pretended revelation of the Spirit or, or by word or by the letter, a letter that's alleged to be from us. So people are writing the Thessalonians letters from Paul, and they weren't really from Paul. That's what that just said. To the effect that, what? The Thessalonians thought the fact that the day of the Lord had already come. That's what they thought. Paul is saying the Thessalonians were thinking it was already here. We're in the, we're, they were thinking we're in the tribulation. What happened? This is why he has to explain all this. And you can see the Amplified spells it out. He calls it pretended revelation. Verses, two, verses three and four. Let no one deceive you, beguile you in any way. For that day, it's not gonna come. You know what has to happen first? The apostasy. What's that? In the Greek, unless the predicted great falling away of Christians. That's here. That's here. If you're really paying attention, how many people have grown up in the faith that have just walked away? Doesn't mean it's over for them yet. The man, okay, that, that has to come, and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed, who is the son of doom, who opposes, exalts himself so proudly and insolently. And it talks more about the Antichrist there in, in, verse, in verse 4. But let's, let's look. Now, it's talking about the Antichrist, right? But guess what? what verse 6 says. But you know what is restraining him from being revealed? It is so that he may be manifest, revealed, and is an appointed time. What's restraining him? It tells us. And I know I'm repeating myself. And you're about to see, this stuff's at work right now. We have a job. What's restraining him? Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness, that hidden principle of rebellion, is already at work in the world. But it is restrained only until he who restrains is taken out of the way. Okay? You're restraining that at what's at work in the world right now. You're restraining it. Okay? The strainer is us. We'll be taken out of the way by the rapture. Then there is no restraint. It'll go from a school shooting every six weeks to nine or ten a day. They won't have a parade anymore. They won't have parades anymore. Okay? You won't see the holodazzle down there. Trust me. The point I'm trying to make is it's already at work in the world, but it is being restrained. And the amount it will be restrained is on me and you. 
because other churches aren't doing this. No offense. I have no problem with the people that do 22-minute sermons and a message not to offend anyone. There are people that it's called to do that. In a one-hour service, that's called a seeker church, right? And they're, they're, they're bringing people in that, that just don't even want to go to church. They, they don't call. They don't, they're coming in. That's what, that's what brings them in. But that is not our call. That is not our call. Okay? 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Then, after you're gone, you're taken out of the way, then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus Christ will slay him with the breath of his mouth. That's Armageddon. Just, and it's over. And then the lawless one will be revealed. When? After he who restrains goes up in the rapture. And in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is through the activity and working of Satan will be attended by great power with all sorts of pretended miracles and signs and delusive marvels. All of them lying wonders. Slide a hand. But, and, by, and this is what we're trying to stop. By unlimited seduction to evil with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, going to perdition, because they did not welcome the truth. That's simply what we're, that is what we're trying to do. That is what we're trying to do. And what I'm trying to do to get to is we have a job to use our authority. And as we close today, Jesus was placed on the cross at 9 a.m. We would get three seals done, right? And I'm just going to, if there's something that needs to be talked about, I'm going to talk about it. I'm not going to, we're not going to just, just blow through Revelation, Right, And so, if we could put the sculpture up. He, he, he was put on the cross at 9 a.m. That is the time of the morning sacrifice under the law, okay? From the sixth hour noon, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, okay? Noon to three. At three o'clock, Jesus cried at the time in the Hebrew language, uh, Eli, Eli, uh, Lama Sabachathani. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During the three hours from noon until three, in that, to- think about it, it's totally dark. Jesus was hanging there and had literally become every sin at that point. That's when he became your sin. And, and it was dark, and he, he, he's, got, he's hanging by nails, right? Somewhere between the wrist and the hand, right? Right in there. And, and so you go back and forth from, from holding yourself up with your hands to letting your weight rest on your feet, on the nails on your feet, okay? And it's back and forth, back and forth. And you're slowly suffocating. He did not die of suffocation. He died of a, of a, of a ruptured heart because of the water that came out with the blood when the Roman soldier stuck it in his side. And so, imagine just hanging there. During that darkness, while bearing that penalty, suffering after being whipped with a can of nine tails, 
each piece of leather, leather studded with multiple pieces of jagged metal, bone, animal teeth. They have found these things in archaeology. The Romans used these whips. Just hanging there, that was the penalty. And God actually could not look at him. Because he says, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God could not look upon the sin a three times holy God probably could not view the sin of all mankind at once. He, had to, he, had, he could not view it. What, what his son was at that moment. And at the moment Jesus died, the penalty was paid. And the darkness lifted. Matthew 27, 51. And at once the curtain of, of the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks were split. That is the veil. I think we did decide on a picture of the veil. Can we put that up? And just, just to kind of just, it's kind of a cheesy picture. But the veil, there's a veil in front of the Ark of the Covenant. That's what they're talking about. Rip the second he... The second he died, the second the penalty was paid, the veil signified that Jesus was dying for our sin and it had just been atoned for, for all sin. And now it's totally open for all of us to have our own personal relationship with God. Under the old covenant, the Gentiles could barely even get into the furthest court in the temple. If you were a Gentile, you could, you could just go in one level. The only person that could walk behind that veil, and it was only once a year, was the high priest. And when he did it, he did it with blood. He had to have blood with him. And sometimes he didn't even make it out of there because he wasn't holy enough. He had bells. So they knew he was okay when they heard the bells ringing. Bells stopped ringing. He He didn't cleanse himself to the point he needed to be Cleansed. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This represented the throne of God. Because of sin, man couldn't enter in the, into the presence of God. But now, because of what Jesus did, Revelation twenty two seventeen, I just think I have to keep Jesus in front of you every possible way I can through this. Otherwise, you just focus. You get all end-timey. Have you ever met those end-timey people? They care nothing else about anything else, right? Revelation 2, 22, 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth come. Let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will, let him take water of life freely. It's for anybody, anybody. He made it for anybody. Sin is not the issue. Hebrews 2, 9. But we are able to see Jesus, who is ranked lower than the angels for a little while, crowned with glory and with honor because of his having suffered death in order that by grace, favor, you don't deserve of God to us sinners. Yes, it just called a bunch of Christians sinners might experience, he might experience death for every individual person. And that says every individual person, Jesus paid the price for every single one of their past, present, future sins. And if he had failed to atone for even one sin, he couldn't have risen from the dead. He couldn't have been risen. But because he atoned for every single sin, death had no power over him. Satan's legal right to hold him captive, hold a man captive, was sin. 
But because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, Satan lost the right. And, and let's, this is Saturday night. I'm just going to have to think of something for tomorrow. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Having canceled and blotted out, wiped away the handwriting of the note, the bond with its legal decrees and demands. Old covenant, okay? Which was enforced and it is hostile against you because no one can fulfill it. This note with its regulations, decrees, demands, he set it aside and cleared it completely out of the way. God disarmed the, the demons and powers that were ranged against us. He went down to hell, made a bold display and a public example of them and triumphing over them. In it, the cross was the triumph. And while the resurrection is, the ut is of utmost importance, there's no New Testament gift of righteousness if he wasn't raised. But just so you guys understand, if we could put the sculpture back up, that it was, it, was, it was that that purchased your redemption. That purchased your redemption. And Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, far be it from me to glory in anything or anyone except in the cross. Okay? Nothing else. Just the cross and that means he looked at the cross consistently, thanked him for the cross, and really you could say in a lot of ways, focused on the cross. If he gloried in the cross, then you had to say he focused on the cross. And I just feel like as we go through the book of Revelation slowly and carefully, you have to remember revealing Jesus Christ. And we really want as many people to get into a relationship with him as we can. I feel a desperation to do it. Why? Because 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Because you can see them falling away like flies. B being in the position I'm in, I, I see it, I see it. I hear it, I see it. Well, let's just not throw up our hands. I have to try to connect you in the spirit, in the physical, in your emotions with this. After he died on the cross, Mark 15, 28 says, the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was counted among the transgressors. Many scholars believe that means he was being processed into hell. He was being given a number. For those of, probably a handful of you, maybe more that have been processed into any kind of jail or prison, you're always given a number, okay? Just like jail. He went to hell, got the victory, so you don't have to go to hell for eternity. And I can feel someone in here thinking, this is a fallacy with your atheistic views. But you're going to know at some point, you're going to know whether if you wind up and you see these seals hitting, whether it's every few months, however that works, or you're going to know that Jesus will still be standing there welcoming you with open arms. 
You would have been too late in terms of escaping the tribulation, but you wouldn't have been too late in, in making a stand for him in the tribulation. There's going to be millions that make a stand for him in the tribulation and become martyrs. And I, I, I believe there'll be some in this room that will have to do that. I, I feel like, and I, I don't just make up the sermon and show up. I, I pray. I, I try to picture you. I, I say, what? Who's there? You know? And I feel like these people are here this weekend. You don't have to be here for that, for these things that we read tonight. You don't have to be here past Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. It's real easy, real simple. So if I could just ask you guys to, to bow your heads and close your eyes and I just just think about think about what, 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 what if I am right? You're, you're going to find out. There's going to be a day. There's going to be a day where you're going to say, he was right. And I'm just, I'm just want to make sure that everyone, it's so simple. It's, it's so simple. He did the hard thing. He hung on the cross and he, God turned, his father turned away from him, couldn't even look at him, forsook him so he would never forsake you. So if you do not feel like that, that, that if you died, that you would go to heaven or if you would like to ask Jesus to come into your heart, I just want you to raise your hand now. And just let me see your hand. Let me just acknowledge to me. That's all you have to do. Just, I see, I see that hand. I see that first hand. I see the second hand over here to the left, to my left. Thank you. Third hand to my left. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If, if there's anyone else, anyone else, thank you, Lord. Got that hand. Thank you. You guys can put those hands down. Thank you so much. Just the fact that you just did that, that's faith. That's all the faith you need. Say, I need him. I need him. That's what you're saying. So let's just say this prayer together because the Bible's very clear. Jesus made it real easy. That You know what you said? Raising your hand, in, a, in essence, you believe. You believe. You wouldn't tell me you need him if you didn't believe. And that's the only thing you need to, do, to have to, to be able to, to go in the rapture, to believe that he died and rose again. To spend eternity with God. So let's just, just repeat this prayer after, after me. If, everyone could just join in. Dear God in heaven, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe he died for my sins on the cross. I believe he was raised from the dead three days later. I ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart to be my Savior and be my Lord. Thank you for saving me now. 
Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.